Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, bringing you events from the Heyman Center archive. This podcast is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Olivia Branska. And I'm Tim Lundy. The presentations you are about to hear come from an event held on February 26, 2019, honoring the work of Adam Reich and Peter Bierman. Adam Reich is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at Columbia University. His research focuses on economic and cultural sociology within organizations. Peter Bierman is director of the Interdisciplinary Center for Innovative Theory and Empirics and Cole Professor of Social Science in the Department of Sociology at Columbia, where he specializes in network analysis and historical sociology. In 2018, Professors Reich and Bierman published Working for Respect, Community and Conflict at Walmart. Working for Respect presents a sociological account of working at Walmart, examining both the lived realities of workers and the implications of a Walmart-like model for the future of labor. As part of the research for the book, the authors paired student activists with representatives from a new group of past and current Walmart associates called the Organization United for Respect at Walmart, known as Our Walmart. Working for Respect shows that even though work at Walmart is often temporary and relatively isolated, workers make their own senses of meaning and community on and off the job. This combination of high worker turnover and meaning-making strategies that do not depend on a stable workplace creates challenges for traditional labor organizations trying to organize for better working conditions at the company. Ultimately, the authors offer strategies for continuing to organize for a more equitable economy. First, we'll hear Professor Reich give an overview of the methodology and main arguments of the book. Then, Professor Suresh Naidu will offer some comments and questions. At the end, Professors Bierman and Reich respond to Professor Naidu. Our plan for tonight was that um, it's, it's actually difficult if you write a book to try to summarize your own book in eight minutes. Um, and so um, we're going to cede our time, a little bit of our time, to the discussion in hopes that themes that are interesting to other people come up and, and we can have a, have a robust conversation with all of us. And so um, I'm ceding the next three minutes of my time. Uh, and Adam will say a few words about the book in summary just to orient um, those of you who haven't read it, and of course, um, we would be amiss to not point out that um, they're being sold right outside, <laughs> and, um, and um, you should buy one. <laughs> With that, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you all for coming. Thank you to the Hayman Center. Um, I want to give uh, those of you who haven't had a chance to read the book, just a little an overview of what it's about and how it emerged. So the, the book um, grew out of an action research project that began in the summer of 2014 as a project inspired by the 50th anniversary of Freedom Summer. Uh, we took 20 students, 10 Columbia students and 10 students from 
uh, other colleges around the country, and we sent them in teams of four to five different regions of the country, to LA, Dallas, Chicago, Cincinnati, um, and uh, uh, Central Florida. Um, and they were tasked with two responsibilities. One, to conduct oral history interviews with Walmart workers, and two, to, to help organize those workers with uh, the organization uh, United for Respect at Walmart, our Walmart, an association that had been organizing uh, Walmart workers since 2010. Uh, the oral histories we thought would help us understand the experience of low-wage work uh, in general and work at Walmart in particular, and the uh, organizing we thought would help change these, these situations. So we, I thought of it as an exercise in public sociology. I'm not sure if he's sure. Peter did too. <laughs> uh, uh, so the short, the short of the book, uh, you know, the, sh the, the short of it is, uh, it's very hard to organize low-wage workers at Walmart. It was hard for our students, um, but it was also hard for the, the organization uh, that we had partnered with, uh, hard for our Walmart. Um, and so this became kind of a puzzle that animates the book. Why is it so hard uh, to organize low-wage workers and how might it be possible? Uh, what we wound up doing is taking the uh, about 100 interviews that the students conducted as well as their field notes um, uh, and then uh, supplementing it with all kinds of other uh, data. The, the 35,000 Yelp reviews written about Walmart, the more than 9,000 reviews of Walmart written on the, the employer rating website glassdoor.com, a survey of over 6,000 Walmart employees uh, that we conducted uh, by targeting Walmart workers on Facebook, uh, store visits, text from an online discussion group to which about 20,000 uh, workers were participating, and the book is a result of this <coughs> engagement. So I, it's a little difficult to summarize uh, what we discovered. Among the things we investigate, though, are through how broad changes in the state may help to explain why it's so difficult to organize low-wage workers. The retraction of the welfare state and rise of mass incarceration has meant that jobs at places like Walmart don't look so bad compared to worsening outside options. Uh, we also look at changes in the labor process, so the particular ways in which work is organized at Walmart and across much of the service sector seems to erode some of the traditional bases for collective identity. There's no collective product um, around which people are working, no machinery of production through which workers are bound together and might uh, come together. Um, uh, we talk about how the pace and structure of, of big box service work is driven by unpredictable consumer demand, which by necessity gives managers a large amount of discretion. Uh, workers' complaints often focus on not getting the respect from managers they feel they deserve. And on the one hand, this can serve as the basis of, uh, of a common grievance, but it can also be understood as just an individual level complaint. Like, I'm not getting the shift I want while my coworker is. Um, finally, we talk about the contemporary labor movement um, and, and, uh, and the problem with appeals that appeal only to self-interest uh, rather than to identity. Uh, it's very difficult to convince workers that organizing isn't their self-interest narrowly conceived. And actually, the places where our Walmart got off the ground the most uh, were places in which workers were able to establish micro-communities that drew on salient local 
uh, collective identities, around being women fighting back against the coercive authority of men, around being African Americans fighting for civil rights, um, uh, around being a religious community fighting for redemption. Um, uh, and then finally, I just want, I think that where, I, where I'm interested in the conversation going on is sort of what the possibilities are in this age for uh, mobilization and, and organizing among low-wage workers. I, I think a lot of the most interesting uh, organizing is actually interacting with uh, uh, the online infrastructure in weird ways. Paradoxically, through these private Facebook groups, um, you know, Facebook which one could reasonably argue that Facebook's otherwise sort of destroying uh, our democracy. But in these pockets, uh, we see teachers coming together. Um, uh, we see other low-wage workers, fast food workers, Walmart workers, uh, uh, Toys R Us workers coming together in ways, uh, delivery workers coming together in ways uh, that actually seem kind of innovative and interesting. So, I'm going to leave it there. That's just a taste of the book. In fact, if Peter gave that summary, he would probably give it in a completely different way, but uh, he didn't. Uh, so uh, we'll now. Next, we hear from Suresh Naidu, a professor of economics in the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia. He studies the economic effects of political transitions the economic history of slavery and labor institutions, and international migration. In these comments, Professor Naidu reinforces the idea that the Walmart labor model is only going to become more relevant in the future. He also discusses the many ways that Walmart workers create meaning out of their work, and how Walmart's employment model makes labor organizing difficult. Finally, Professors Reich and Bierman offer some reflections on the comments, with a special focus on strategies for future community organizing efforts. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so, so just to put it all um, uh, and make it all public, so I, Adam and I run together fairly regularly, and so I've sort of been hearing and talking about this project kind of along its incubation uh, and sort of seeing it developed and sort of and collaborating with with Adam on, on small bits of it. But I figure let's like sharpen the differences here. Let me come at this from an economist's uh, uh, perspective. <laughs> and uh, uh, what, yeah, yeah. And Adam's going to beat me up after. So, you know, I, I sort of really, really uh, love the book and feel like everybody interested in future work stuff and like thinking about AI is not the right thing. It's like this is the kind of thing that's much more like what the future of work looks like. And in terms of like so many ways in which the Walmart labor experience is actually super prefigurative of what we think gig economy jobs are of like low attachment, high turnover. Um, and then you have these like few workers that are then very stable and uh, uh, and attached to, to, to Walmart for very particular reasons, either their outside option or because they found a particular attachment in the store. And I think we're just going to see a lot more of that kind of um, uh, splitting of the workforce into a set of like mobile workers that are moving across places, but then also a, 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 a set of workers that are like find themselves attached to one particular uh, uh, platform or work environment, and, and they just kind of hang on to it. And so, I'd encourage people to like look at the book in terms of you know Walmart is just important in its own right, but it's also it was not just an innovator. I think in 
just-in-time supply chain management, but also kind of an innovator in how to create this like high turnover, low wage uh, strategy that like works for them in terms of uh, you know they get what they need from workers and then they're, they 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 don't have to worry uh, too much about it. Uh, in contrast to, for example, other like Costco being the sort of common comparison that's being made. So Walmart versus Costco. Costco is like a high road, low turnover, high wage place. Walmart is like a low wage, high turnover place. Both are roughly servicing you know kind of these big box stores, um, and that's kind of a uh, a comparison that that we we often make in 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 economics. And so part of that high turnover is, I think, what makes the problem interesting and um, you know, a problem. So you know, my first reaction to high turnover is that, oh yeah, that's just because they're paying low wages. And so you know, if you raise the wage, you would kill the turnover, and that would be that would kind of you know solve the problem. So I was sort of thought of it as this chicken and egg problem where if you could get enough people to attach themselves to a workplace enough to raise to like organized to raise the wage, you would sort of Im immediately see the turnover fall. I think after reading the book, I don't think that's true as much. I think there's really something different about work, that, uh, that how it's attached, how meaning's created around it, that means that people are just less attached to these jobs. For, for a segment of workers, then you have another set of workers that are extremely attached to these jobs, and I think this like diversity in the way that people are like making meaning or attaching themselves to jobs is just interesting and probably something we're going to see uh, uh, more of. And what that means is that employers actually have something they can work with. And, uh, and I think it sort of helps explain kind of the puzzle in my world of just like stagnant wages. And uh, in particular, why even in like a super tight labor market, you sort of see slow wage growth. It's that, you know, employers know that there's a whole bunch of workers, they don't know exactly which ones, that will stay with them regardless of what wage they're going to pay. And so they're quite willing to like lowball the wage. They're going to lose some workers, but they're willing to like uh, take it for the for the what they save on the other workers. And that's just sort of you know it's like the flip side in the labor market of monopoly in the product market. And I think like the, but what's important about I think and what I feel like this book helps reveal is that there's an important like cultural dimension of work that makes that possible. It's like these differential attachments to the workplace that make that a profit maximizing strategy for employers that you can actually live all the wage. Some workers are like, screw you, I'm leaving. Other workers are like, no, I really need this and will stay, even in the face of, 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 of low wages. Um, and so, so I think that, that sort of strategy of like the relationship of the pay setting protocol of the firm to uh, how workers are kind of, different workers are making meaning out of the job was something I, 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 I left the, the, the work with. And then I sort of came back to this, like, okay, so that's, that's um, one problem. So then it's like, what is the organizing problem here is that you need to create, then, a community of people that care about working conditions of Walmart, potentially even when they're not, no longer working at Walmart. Because like if you just sort of focus on the people that are working at any Walmart, they're just going to turn over pretty quickly, and so it's going to be hard to form like a coalition in any one store that's like really invested in Walmart. So I, our, our Walmart is a coalition of both current and former Walmart workers. And uh, um, and so then kind of the puzzle is how do you create a community, how do you build collective identities of like workers that might be much more diffuse than the workplace. Um, and I feel like what I took from this is that um, it's very hard both methodologically for social scientists to study identity creation and maintenance like at scales like this, that it's just um, and it's very difficult for organizations themselves to maintain identities at scales like this. 
Um, in particular, when you don't have access to any sort of coercive apparatus, when you're just like requiring people to voluntarily join things, and you can't kind of use the cops and the tax system to like make them sort of identify with, uh, or school system to make them identify with a particular identity, I can't think of other institutions besides, um, I guess, sports teams. Uh, maybe could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Sports teams are maybe the one that, that like can create identity at scale. Which religions and and, and uh, 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 yeah, religions and political parties. Uh, uh, but but you know, how do you how how you um, uh, you create identities without this uh, without coercion is just like really hard. Uh, and I think it's something. And how do you study identity creation when it doesn't have these like clean boundaries? When there's just lots of permeability of who's in and who's out, I think was um, was was interesting uh, for me. And sort of what I took from like the structure of the Walmart worker sort of community is that you have these little micro communities of of uh, cliques that can can be mobilized to do organizing work, but they're kind of these like knots in this tapestry of free riding. Um, and so in the in the broad brush of like people that might have an interest in Walmart. Pretty much everyone's like, eh, not. I'm just gonna look out for me and uh, leave, you know leave things to other people. And then you have these like like cliques and knots of people that are like really potentially mobilizable, that are in groups of people that are mobilizable. But I almost wonder if the book draws too much attention to the cliques and like underestimates just the broad like mass of people. Like you know, there's 1.8 million workers at Walmart. We once did a calculation when I was in grad school of this. Given the turnover. If everybody worked for Walmart only once, basically every American would work for Walmart in like 35 years. It's just like because they churn through every single that basically have like a 25% turnover rate and 1.8 million workers, you could get you can eat up a lot of the American workforce really quick um, uh, 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 if you if you impose a requirement that everyone's got to work there once. Um, <laughs> uh, of course, not everybody works there only once, so it's a. Uh, um, Okay, I have uh, so this 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 your your yeah okay so um, the last thing I want to end with is um, is what is just what this implies for the for the for the labor movement and so the labor movement's got to figure out a way to work with these communities that that are just widely dispersed and so one thing the labor movement is really effective at is winning like minimum wages and five for fifteen and all these things and what they can't do is turn that into dues paying membership. And because they can't get the people that are benefiting from those things to identify with an organization that they're willing to contribute and become members to. But then I was like thinking, well, why not? Why can't you just start a Kickstarter that was like, if you've gotten a wage increase thanks to 15, Fight for 15, maybe you could be willing to like contribute something to SEIU and maybe like attach yourself to a union in some, in some way. And so the way in which unions will like win membership and wage increases is no longer going through like collective bargaining at the firm level. It'll be going to like much larger units like governments and imposing wage mandates that way, but then getting membership by a more uh, voluntary decentralized means. Wow. Um, <laughs> no, it's really a treat to have such um, incredible comments. So thanks. It, it, it's also this experience of seeing what is in a book that you thought you knew was in there. So that's also a super, <laughs> a, a super treat. The nice things you said are really satisfying, and, um, and the questions you raise are, are, um, are, are challenging. Um, let me just say a few things in response to some of the things that came up. I think that Suresh's comment about um, 
the, the discovery that there are two kinds of workers, um, those that are attached in some way to Walmart and those who are actually um, uh, exiting at, at where there's just this tremendous churn is, is true. But I think that uh, it's not precisely, at least the way I would read it, that the, that the labor management process is kind of designed to, um, to pay the people who are attached very little because they're attached for, for whatever reason. It's actually quite dependent on the churn. And that one of the things that it's hard to realize is that, that, that these, are, these companies actually succeed by virtue of high turnover. Um, high turnover has the effect of constantly breaking up the possibilities of social solidarity. Um, it breaks up the um, it breaks up the opportunity um, for people to actually come to recognize that they have joint interests, and um, it creates this simultaneous fiction um, that the people who stay have chosen to stay, um, and thereby don't are not legitimated or warranted to make a critique of the labor deal that they're being offered, and and the way churn works, I think, is interesting, which is to the Walmart, by virtue of not paying very much money, creates an extremely precarious workforce whose, um, whose everyday life is um, challenged by all the kind of stochastic events that happen to us. Um, the cat runs out the door and you, you can't, you, you know, you miss the bus and you, you get to work late. Um, your child is sick and there's no daycare. The furnace goes out and you have to try to figure out how to fix it. And by creating, um, uh, by pushing all responsibility for time management onto workers, they, in a sense, produce the churn that they then rely on to break up the social solidarity. Because precarious people in precarious situations can't absorb the stochastic shocks of everyday life the way we can. You know, if the, if if if, um, if our kid is sick, we can get a babysitter. But if you have no resources, you can't. And then you have to take a day off or miss a day, and as a consequence. You've gotten one more personal absence, and you've gotten your three uh, tickets, and you're out. And so the churn works by virtue of, of um, creating precarity and then pushing responsibility onto workers for the management over their own time, which is very difficult to manage if you're in a precarious situation. Great, thanks. This was, uh, I don't know how it was for you, but it was uh, really fun for me to, to, to hear these comments. Uh, thank you. I'm also going to just try to respond to bits and pieces of what you said. Um, to, to respond to this question of work and meaning, I think to me one of the big surprises of the project was actually the extent to which people did seem to make a lot of meaning out of uh, work that I wouldn't necessarily expect people to make a lot of meaning uh, out of. That like the, the cashier who was like really invested in being the fastest cashier in the district, and like, it was hard to do, and he did it, and he was proud that he did it, and I think you see that kind of, um, this is in part about the organization of work, that Walmart's figured out how to set up these little games through which people can feel like they're, they're competing with others, they're, they um, can do things better than others, and that actually sort of reproduces um, uh, these workers' investments in the work. But so one of, I think, if anything surprised me, it was this sort of the extent to which we did see people's investments in the work here.
And then I get, so the, the final thing I'll say is like, I just want to pick out the pieces of your comments that I think have implications for what we ought to do, um, or what, what a renewed labor movement might look like. Um, and then this goes to, uh, uh, I guess, a final point um, about like high turnover. I think one thing it's high turnover suggests uh, is this kind of looking beyond individual workplaces as the, uh, in terms of how one might organize, like look, one might organize within a particular geography around a, a retail sector. Um, uh, there's been work in Stanford, Connecticut to sort of organize the whole town um, uh, across employer, across industry. Uh, but then I, I also think if we're thinking about these different kinds of workers, like some workers uh, are more likely to stay and, and others are more likely to go, then I think the question is how to, how to identify, how to come up with ways of identifying those workers who might be the, the who, who have the highest potential for leadership. Because it doesn't take that many uh, leaders within a store to make something happen. And, um, you know, in the Pico Rivera store, uh, uh, of, which is in Southern California, and it was the most successful, the most successful, our Walmart chapter, um, there are only four real leaders, and they managed to get like 200 of their coworkers uh, involved. So I, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, on this question of scale, it may be that if we figure out a way to identify uh, leadership better, then perhaps there's, uh, there's hope. Can I just say one thing in addition to that? Because the, this goes to Suresh's comment about we may have concentrated too much on a couple of success stories, like Pico Rivera is a success story. Um, of course, as soon as the women organized, the store developed plumbing problems, and they shut the store down, and all the people were laid off, and none of the people who were organizing it were ever hired. And at one moment in time, also, the butchers were man managed to organize, and Walmart was able to totalize and simply um, just not sell cut meat anymore. Um, that is, stop having butchers. Um, but I think there's a really difficult issue beyond leadership, which is in a, when you're in a factory um, that has, a, has an assembly line, a very, very small proportion of the workers um, can shut down that factory simply by working rule or simply by withdrawing labor. So if, if, five, if five or six workers on a line just stop working, the entire factory shuts down. So that gives labor an enormous um, source of structural power that's completely absent um, in, on the shop floor and in a place like Walmart where um, if 10 or even 15 or 20 percent of the workers just don't show up, nothing changes except the customers um, get longer lines, more cranky, and complain more and act more like managers. So it takes an enormous effort to be able to actually make change at the local store level. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Adam Reich and Peter Bierman's Working for Respect. We hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Weil Halak's book, Restating Orientalism, a Critique of Modern Knowledge. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Tim Lundy. And I'm Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is the song Moonrise by Poddington Bear from soundofpicture.com.